I've been suspiciously fortunate in my searches for interesting people to interview. Already I've been gifted with guests from unique walks of life, with stories from places and professions which are entirely alien to mine. But my guest today kind of threw me for a loop in a way I frankly wasn't really prepared for. You see this guy, he interviews people for a living. And I've been listening to him do this for literally years. So to say I was intimidated is something of an understatement. That said, this guy walks into an interview that I was very nervous doing and just made me feel like I was talking to somebody I went to school with or someone I grew up with. The movies he picked could easily have been ones on my list. The ways in which he clearly adores them for how they make him laugh, they make him cry or just throw your hands up in frustration or gratitude at the kind of genius he hopes he never understands. I've always wanted to know this guy and in a shockingly short amount of time, I kind of feel like I do now. The guy in question is Jarlath Regan. He's a stand-up comedian, podcaster, self-confessed VHS thief. And when he's not busy being one of the country's finest and proudest exports, he's usually found hoarding expensive sneakers, like myself, trying to explain the subtle difference between a gobshite and an Egypt, and quietly stalking Daniel Day-Lewis, whether he knows it or not. His award-winning podcast, An Irishman Abroad, has really crafted the kind of storytelling any of us from home or away can be proud of and i've been binging the entire archive of my favorite episodes that is patreon you can find links to that in the show notes below and not only that but his latest in the streak of incredible stand-up specials called notions 11 is available exclusively through the patreon which to be honest is an embarrassment of riches comedic or otherwise he's got a a great section going on currently at the moment about the the u.s election which is well worth listening to and um, if I sound excited, it's because I am. I'm honestly, I am dying to share this interview with you. So, without further ado, Akaja, Jarlath Regan. So, Jarlath, first of all, thanks very much for joining me today. Go through your films. They're ones that, on the surface, appear to be kind of quite bright and breezy, but very dark undertones to a lot of them. Is there something <laughs> you're trying to tell me there with your picks? Yeah. Well, look, if comedy uh, is done well, it has to have a darkness to it. You know, there's no such thing as comedy that doesn't emanate from uh, a dark place or a sadness or an edge. Um, the one in the middle, I mean, it's just the re- most rewatchable movie of all time, as far as I, I can tell. And to me, there's probably better movies than the three that I've chosen. But really, from the perspective of watchability, like there's certain films that I watch once and like that was great but i never want to see it again (laughs) so i was basing my three choices on the movies that i go to when i'm in need of a pick me up or if they're on the tv will i leave it on Uh, i think that's that's some form of a test of the best movies ever certainly from my standard that that is a big part of this the first one on your list there is a film I absolutely adore. For me, it's one of the best sports films of all time, and that's 1992's White Men Can't Jump. You, I'm quite jealous of. You got to speak to the director, Ron Sheldon, who also done things like Bull Durham, Cobb, which I think is a very underrated sports movie, Tin Cup, and he also done the, the 30 for 30, the Jordan Rides the Bus. Mm. What do you think he can bring to those types of films that maybe other directors can't like why do you think he's so good at that particular genre i think probably his experience as a minor league baseball player himself helps a lot if people don't know this ron shelton in another life was a baseball player and you know his first swing at bat 
as a screenwriter was Bull Durham, which got him nominated for an Oscar. And in it, if you haven't seen it, you should, because the skill of Ron Shelton is to listen and adapt conversation to comedy and also to take sports, which, let's face it, are extremely hard to capture on film and make them real. He kind of sees the essence of, well, this is essential to this game. And for us to capture it, he knows what parts of it can't be cheated because cinema is all about cheating, isn't it? It's all, you know, not shot in order, the angles, every every part of it is fake. But the human eye has a weird <laughs> radar <laughs> for uh, acted uh, sports because the I think that you've watched it for so long and we all understand in the same way if you make a movie about stand-up comedy, again, another thing that's very hard to do, if the jokes aren't funny, our ear knows that audience is pretending to laugh. It's why the canned laughter on sitcoms can sound so odd. Uh, so to me, and from talking to Ron Shelton, it became really obvious that it was the capturing of real-life play and capturing the vernacular and the talk, the speak that comes with it, that really made all of his sports movies, especially White Man Can't Jump, so memorable. I think you touched on something there with, with authenticity, because I think especially being Irish, like baseball, American football are not games I would understand in the slightest, but you can kind of tell the difference between, you know, a well-made American football or baseball film and one that isn't, despite not having any sort of emotional connection to the sport either. Mm, yeah, I think they're the underneath it all is the stories, obviously. And, uh, you know, with White Men Can't Jump, it is a story of a fucking Egypt. <laughs> 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 Something that Irish people can relate to. I mean, the question is whether Billy Hoyle uh, is a gobshite or an Egypt. You know, a, a gobshite is perpetual loser or just a fella who just can't quite get it right like a lot of us. Uh, and then, you know, he said in, in that interview, which people can hear, obviously, over on my premium Irish Man Abroad feed, that he, he wrote the script 27 pages in one night and had the title long in advance but he actually became stuck on the character of Gloria and giving her a story you know an independent reason to be there that was outside of supporting the men which was obviously a big problem in Hollywood at the time and I just love that how he stumbles upon this idea that she's in LA to be a star on the Jeopardy game show uh, and how you know that is a universal too the belief that if I get this one thing, then my life will be sorted. So while we can't relate to, and we may not have known, certainly I didn't know much about basketball when I watched it first as a 12-year-old in the Curra of Kildare. Uh, it, it was the stories that that really cr cut through the, the rules of the game. And that's true of any great American football movie too. And the vernacular as well, like they've, you know, they invent the yo mama jokes, which <laughs> I just, and it's, it's rewatching it there last night. There's so much that has, because again, like we're about the same age. I think I watched it around the, the same age as you. It just seeped in, like even, you know, you have, your mama's so fat, she broke her leg and gravy poured out. Like I'm still 
using that to this day, which <laughs> probably shouldn't be a 37. But <laughs> And the thing that really stood out for me watching it was the, the steel chains and the basketball hoops, which just seemed like the coolest thing that ever was or ever will be and trying to hook bike chains up to the, the local basketball <laughs> court to try and get it to work. Like they'll yeah. be five foot six lad trying to jump up and, and dunk. It just wasn't happening for me. <laughs> Another thing is that they don't actually end up together. Um, Woody Harrelson, uh, Billy and Gloria. That's just something that just, I, I can imagine that, and he speaks about it on your uh, podcast is, is how much they're like, no, no, they have to stay together and how much kind of studio interference, which, mm. you know, it ended up actually with a lawsuit then in the end, which meant we never got the, the proposed sequel. Or Netflix series, which I think is, the Netflix series of that show is is never ending. Uh, I mean, if you think about how many scrapes Billy can get into and how much backstory we can give, it's the uh, Better Call Saul of sports series. I think that's that's heartbreaking that that didn't happen uh, because, as you say, it, it doesn't have the Hollywood ending. And I thought that that was essential, too, that if... Uh, in the same way, there's a feminist slant to the movie that, you know, Gloria was better than Billy. She was a better person. And he, he, if he was ever going to learn anything, it, he had to lose her. <laughs> and yeah. also it didn't, it wouldn't have made sense for Billy to have a happy ending. <laughs> I mean, Woody Harrelson punching the air. <laughs> Gobshites win. <laughs> <laughs> I just I kept thinking of uncut gems watching it because he just he keeps reaching a certain point and like, will you just fucking stop now? You're ahead. Like he just can't seem to. He always has to have the the one extra score. You feel? Well, I did ask Ron Shelton about that. About you know, or did I in my? I can't even tell because that interview is so long. Like it's actually two hours conversation where he I couldn't get him off the phone he was so excited to talk about it nobody nobody had ever really done a deep dive with him on it and I was like well is Billy a perpetual is he actually a gambling addict but you know he seemed to explain that no Billy's number one problem is that he's just he's just dumb you know, like, he's just stupid. Like it's not even. Oh my God, he has a traumatic childhood. No, he's just stupid. <laughs> he's <a> stupid, Billy. <laughs> and there, there is. You're kind of giving him too much credit. You did speak about it. On this is just turned into an ad for your interview now. But the <laughs> the moment where he turns to Wesley Snipes and says, "Do you know how hard it is making something this pretty look so bad?" And you think, "Oh, he, he's really put a lot of effort into this." And yeah. then later on, he says, "Well, actually, no, it's just a tick." <laughs> yeah, yeah. Cause, like honestly, I'm glad you picked up on that question because. And that was where I felt Ron Shelton kind of put me in my place because I was a bit like, <laughs> Ron, I think I've I've got it. Like, you know, that that was a hint at that Woody had gone to a secondhand shop to look like an idiot, uh, to come down to the courts and look like a total, what's the word, uh, you know, a stooge. Uh, that, a yeah, a, a fucking <laughs> geek. <laughs> and uh, he... Um, Ron's like, no, no, those are just the clothes he wore. <laughs> okay, I, I got my anorak, I took my anorak off and got on with the interview. One thing again from this film that just opened up a whole another world for me, and I know you're a big fan as well, was when I saw, I know the, the, the Nike Air Command Force of the shoes in it, but the Reebok pumps, as somebody who had to wear, you know, Strider shoes from Dunn's for most of his life, seeing Reebok pumps just 
uh, it was like watching a Martian. I was like, th- those are real things that exist. It wasn't until years later I realized I could actually buy them. Well, started a, an addiction I think you have as well. Yeah, anyone who follows me on social media knows my sneaker obsession and my wife knows it better than anybody. Uh, I am utterly obsessed with sneakers, specifically that era, because it was such a golden age and there was so many new advances in the technology, some of which were bananas and didn't make any sense like why would you want to pump up your shoes (laughs) why (laughs) a a better fit was the argument and then of course there was a dunk contest in the nba where a player called d brown pumped up his shoes before every dunk implying that this was what was allowing him to elevate into the air Uh, they did come with that sense of if i put on the superman cape i will be able to fly uh, and that was you know, one of the selling points of Air Jordans was they were banned by the league because they gave you an unfair advantage when in truth they were banned because they didn't match the color scheme. Uh, the command force, the shoes that Billy wears in uh, White Man Can't Jump, actually pump up too. The only Nike ever to pump up. So they were their answer to the Reebok pump and they were absurd. They nearly come up to the middle of your shin. They're so high. They're the highest high tops ever made. And I guess in the research for that episode of Irishman Inside Basketball, I I really became obsessed with the wardrobe and those shoes. And I managed to track down a pair online uh, and treated myself to them (laughs) as a reward (laughs) for getting those. So I have those in the collection now. I could criticize you, but I'm literally bidding on the the re-release, the the 2009s, the hyperizes that have "I'm in the fucking zone" on the tongue and the French <laughs> advisory lyrics. So I'm hoping by the end of the day I will join you in that obsession. Um, did you actually did you ever play the the Atari game, the Atari Jaguar game? I never played it. I did spot it in the research and didn't get to ask Ron about it. But there's there's a bunch of spin-off kind of nonsense that you know at the time was i guess regarded as uh really cutting edge like there's a really bad music video uh called white men can't jump that came out as a blu-ray extra with the movie where rosie perez wesley snipes and woody harrelson are clearly wheeled onto set (laughs) they were thinking it was their version of call me out yeah yeah, a little bit yeah so i just brought up the game uh, because they're not actually fucking in it (laughs) Oh, what? Yeah, How can you have there's two people them? who look very similar to them are the bosses at the end, but you can't play as them. Makes no sense. And it's completely in keeping with how games were created in the uh, in the early 90s. <laughs> I could talk about white men can't jump all day, but we have to move on to your, your next film, the adaptation of the Stephen King novella, Rita Hayworth and the Shawshank Redemption, just called the Shawshank Redemption when it was released. Wildly considered to be the best film of all time. Do you remember the first time you saw this? Because it was kind of it was a theatrical bomb at the time. Absolutely. And that's one of the reasons I like it, I think, because uh, I was a struggling artist for many, many years. And it's a movie about hope that people didn't give a chance to in the, the cinema to really failed to deliver. So my first time seeing it was uh, on its VHS release on a windy, wet night in uh, the Curragh of Kildare, where I grew up. Uh, you know, one of those Saturday nights where you go down to Extra Vision, God rest its soul. You know, we had to book it. It was in such demand. And that kind of tell you everything about 
what an explosive success it was on VHS. Like, I robbed many VHS tapes from Extra Vision. Uh, maybe I'm partially uh, or the reason they went out of business. Your life fee has got to kept them afloat. <laughs> exactly. We all we all played a part in that. But this was one that kept getting stolen from Extra Vision in Newbridge. And yeah, it, it, it hits you when you're when you're particularly young as well. I don't think you've you've seen a, a movie like it at the time. And I always think that about these kind of top three movie lists. It's usually movies from when you hadn't really seen much cinema in the same way as if we can all remember the first album we bought that really went in. And it's nearly that's etched into the vinyl of your brain like no other film. So in in a lot of ways, White Man Can't Jump and Shawshank went in never to be forgotten because they were the first things written on the hard drive. It is. And it's something across your three films. It's something I'm, I'm really passionate about. It was the disappearance of the mid-budget film. Like, every, like we all love our Avengers and, you know, mm-hmm. you, the Netflix turn out a film a week. But nothing, quality isn't as important now because you don't, if you don't make it in the opening weekend or the first week release on Netflix, it's not going to find an audience or one that could be monetized anyway. And that's all they really care about. So something like Shawshank would never be made now because... It's not something that you could make a sequel or a spin-off or slap on a lunchbox. So mm. it's sad that they're the ones that are disappearing. Funny that seems to have happened to, you know, Stephen King movies along the way. Like uh, Stand By Me very nearly didn't get made until Norman Lear stepped in and said that he would provide the entire budget from his own pocket. I mean... I, I think it's really sad because there's so many great writers out there and so many great stories being told. Like there's so many amazing books that I get sent and that, you know, you just come across that it, it maybe maybe there'll be a resurgence of that. And it would take a similar kind of phenomenon of a movie like Shawshank for that to kind of whip up a frenzy in the industry that, oh, we need to find these stories and tell these stories just the way kind of the Raging Bulls and Easy Riders kind of period came about. You mentioned there about Stand By Me, the director that Rob Reiner actually offered to buy the script off Frank Darabont, the director, for no two and a half million because Tom Cruise wanted to star in it and he didn't want to be in a film directed by <laughs> such an inexperienced director. Oh my uh, God, can you imagine uh, how shit this film is with Tom Cruise in it? All due respect to Tom, who I know listens to this every week release. <laughs> <laughs> Again, he is someone I like. And the first 20 minutes of every film, I'm like, oh, you believe in aliens and you're mad. And then he, he'll jump off a building and break his leg. Like, all right, I'm entertained. You're, you're all in. But it's it's a completely different film with him in it. Mm. And I kind of respect that Rob Reiner, like Tom Cruise said, okay, Frank Darabont can direct it, but Rob Reiner has to be on set to kind of mentor you. Mm. And Rob Reiner, to his credit, turned around and said, no, if he's making the film, it's his film. I'm not getting involved. And that's how Tom Cruise ended up uh Falling out of the film then. Wow, wow. I see. Yeah, I definitely went through a period similar to White Man Can't Jump where I just read and looked up everything I could about this movie. Just because as a production, first of all, I always think it's it's a miracle anything gets made. Uh, And to have captured a prison at that time in that era the way they did, like it's it's magical. Like it's a magical kind of time machine of a movie in that way you really feel like you've gone back there and the casting is just so impeccable Tom takes you out of that but there is there is something 
of that era about everyone who's cast in this. Yeah, Tim Robbins and Morgan Freeman, they feel very much like, uh, you know, kind of matinee stars from the 50s. Mm. You could put them into any of those. Very much so. You also had a, a show that you named after uh, Mr. Freeman called Morgan Freeman. Did. Jesus, I ne- I actually forgot there for a split second that I wrote that show. But yeah, I wrote a show called Oregon Freeman about me donating a kidney to my brother in the States who had been very sick for a long time. And uh, yeah, I mean, this was like, I remember when I came up with the title, there hadn't been any Morgan Freeman uh, Me Too stuff. <laughs> <laughs> I, hadn't I was like, yet. <laughs> I was praying. I was praying. Please don't, Morgan. You're so charming. Uh, please don't use your powers for evil. Uh, <laughs> but uh, yeah, no. It, it was like pun titles are a real minefield. Uh, but thankfully, that one, that title was unanimously approved by everybody that saw it. Simply because you can't, you can't help saying it. In a, in a Morgan Freeman voice. <laughs> uh, most of your shows actually had Arseways, which I remember had the sideways poster on it. And yeah, then, of course, yeah. your latest one, Notions 11. Do you just it's think 11. of the, the joke or do you just think, I like this film, I'll try and get this in here somewhere? I, I always loved the artwork for Sideways. And Arseways is an Irish word that I've never heard in any other country, especially its usage. Um, and on that poster and on the flyer for Arseways, that stand up show that I wrote in 2016, uh, I would have like the the dictionary definition and usage of it on the, back <laughs> of the flyer. Uh, and still I got reviewers who came to the show and were like, uh, Jonathan Regan titles his show Arseways, yet never explains once the meaning of the word. <laughs> like, oh, man. Uh, but no, I don't think I think I do believe in uh, triggering memories with titles uh, and with stand up. So much of comedy and jokes for me is cheat codes, right? It's like a cheat code to go back to the NES machine. It's up, up, down, down, left, left, right, right, A, B, select and start at the same time. And now we all remember that thing from that time. We're accessing things that we all agree or remember as funny or surprising. And obviously that's not the only way that jokes exist or punchlines exist. But part of that has to be the, I think the title has to go is to be a knowing glance at something we already thought of as fixed. So that's kind of where the thinking behind those titles comes from. And the other thing is, it just looks good on a poster. <laughs> uh, you said they were kind of the, the wave of nostalgia and things like that. The original ending of Shawshank actually had Red and Andy not meeting up. And mm. one of the few times I think that a kind of studio interference worked in his favor. Do you mm. think it works better, kind of ambiguous, or would you, do you need to see it? It's a really good question. I've thought about it a fair bit. I listened to Bill Simmons. If people are looking for something else, Bill Simmons does a rewatchables episode about this. And there is something to be said for not having them meet. But the reason why it works, I believe the reason why it works is how well it's shot and how well it's done. There's no words. And the pullback the the score it fits it just fits and i would imagine that it didn't take a 
<laughs> a nuclear physicist to know that. <laughs> Literally, watch this, now watch this. And people were like, it's got to be that. Yeah. <laughs> As they wiped the tears from their eyes. <laughs> I actually got in trouble for work doing this on, on uh, We Love Movies on Spin and I just went on the stream of consciousness about how Andy is never actually he doesn't get his conviction over tour and so for, from a public perspective this you know escaped murderer has got out of jail you've Morgan Freeman a known associate going to meet him please follow Morgan Freeman catch Andy he gets back in Shawshank by the end of the month <laughs> the comments <laughs> I got under the show oh my god you have ruined the shut up just shut up that was basically everything underneath it so I, I don't think I'll be propelling that again uh, a friend of yours, Joe Rooney, actually done a version of this. I don't know if you ever caught to see that. Um, yeah, no, that was on in the same venue as I did my Edinburgh show in 2013, I think it was. And it also starred Dave Johns, who uh, people will know from uh, Daniel Blake, a brilliant actor and great stand-up comic. And uh, yeah, and I was, I, I, the funny thing about that was I was meant to go like I would say 10 different nights but the way Edinburgh works is you don't just do your show you run off and do four different spots across the city to promote your show so every single time I attempted to go and see it <laughs> someone would ring and go can you come and do this and you can't turn that down but I eventually did see the production in the uh, gaiety when it came to Dublin and yeah it was remarkable remarkable transfer to the stage when you think about this, this movie shouldn't, it shouldn't be possible. No. They did. And it was great. The final film on your list here, another all-time classic, one of my favourite comedies, 1984's This Is Spinal Tap. As a comedian, do you watch this and just think, oh, fuck you? Like, how do you riff on this? <laughs> uh, no, I really, I'm really grateful to it. Uh, and I think everyone should be because it's the beginning of every type of fly on the wall side eye documentary maker covering a deluded individual and that trope and that setup is you know how many shows movies uh, do we know and love now that are literally recasting the <laughs> the cast has final tap and using the ingredients and formula of this movie. I watch it and I just think it's like so far ahead of its time that I'm really grateful that that I got to meet Harry Shearer and even just to touch it at all uh, is to be part of you know something really amazing. If anybody's listening to this who hasn't watched Spinal Tap, you know, ahead of anything that I've recommended here, you know, you need to watch this just because also like, let's face it, everything that happens in this movie still applies to the music industry today. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe not so much releasing uh, vinyl <laughs> with nothing on the cover, but it, it, it it's delusion is the, is one of the funniest things to me. And <laughs> this, this group of individuals and, every character in it is deluded in their own way. And I've never watched it and not laughed. I've, I've definitely loved comedy movies in the past and thought, I'll watch that again. And then just been like, oh, can't watch that anymore. Every time I put on Spinal Tap, I just love it so much. I laugh so much each time. <laughs> My wife it is time. You watching like, this again? 1984 and it's still like you could stick that yeah. on now, have no context and would still laugh your ass off at it. And, and I do. 
<laughs> and there's so many like the, the main cast obviously we've got like you know rob reiner who seems to be making a lot of appearances on this episode yeah. as the as the documentary filmmaker he, the the manager for me is absolutely fantastic tony hendra <laughs> and i don't know if you know the backstory that he actually tried to commit suicide the night before he started filming this no he, he took a handful of sleeping pills, ended up falling asleep before he could actually finish off the job, woke oh up God. and he's like, well, well, I have to go to work. And he kind of credits this film with, you know, saving Save his fun. life. That's wow. what, you know, he's so much fun making this. And he, again, like he's somebody who isn't a very big part in the film, but, you know, he created Spit and Image. He launched the careers of Chevy Chase and James Belushi. And even you've got people like, you know, Fred Willard as the, the army captain. It's just mm. it's just this relentless onslaught of A-list comedians in this. Like, it doesn't give you a chance to stop for a breath. It's not set up, set up punchline. It's just there's a million different things going on at once. Yeah, like even Billy Crystal makes an appearance. And each scene is a Saturday Night Live sketch, essentially. And even if you're a good one, <laughs> let's be clear, there are bad Saturday Night Live sketches. But each one just delivers at every turn. And. And just the concept of how improvised a lot of it was gets me when I think about, you know, what you said at the start, that these are genii and mm. we're watching them create magic in front of us. Even the lick my love, the lick my love <laughs> scene and the <laughs> these go to 11. I mean, maybe my favorite scene in any movie ever like you can like you said you can make a blockbuster but the context and the timing like the timing people say it all the time comedy is about timing the timing in those scenes has never been bettered like just the hesitation and pause the use of silence in those moments I'm laughing about it now. Like, I have tears coming out of my eyes laughing about it. I minor. I minor. Very sad. Very contemplative. <laughs> my favourite of that is the, when he's asked about being a shoe salesman. And just that <laughs> brief pause. And he's like, well, what are the hours? <laughs> it's just so, like, everyone talks, you know, you've got this, this phone hand set, set up. You know, the, the big comedy moments. Well, just that moment. Like, I... <laughs> I have to brace myself when I'm watching it like five minutes before I'm going, it's coming, it's coming. It's, uh, yeah, no, I'm really happy I remembered to put it on the list. And they've done a mighty wind, best in show for your consideration. Not quite as good as Spinal Tap, but each one of those is, is endlessly watchable as well. I don't know how many of those you've watched yourself. Yeah, I only, the only one that I felt came close was best in show. For the same reason that you mentioned about how much is going on, that like there's there's so many layers to that and so many characters who are all swinging for the fences. Like nobody, there's no one who you're like, ah, oh, I wish they had gotten someone better for that. In Best in Show, every single performance is off the radar. It's so unbelievably high which is, must be incredibly hard to do, especially when all of them watching that movie in preparation for making it are looking at Spinal Tap, essentially trying to emulate the greatest comedy movie ever made. Uh, how they drew those performances and got that level of realism out of all of the people is 
is is an, probably an even bigger achievement because it's essentially the difficult second album. The realism that you touched on this reminds me of the the story when uh, Liam and Noel Gallagher went to see them in Wembley when Spinal Tap were playing concerts. And they came out as the folk band from A Mighty Wind as the support act. And Liam turns to Noel and says, who are these fucking agents supporting them? And he's like, this is the same as Spinal Tap. And he had no concept this wasn't a real band. That sounds like a real Noel Gallagher story. That <laughs> All of his stories are like, and our kid turns to me, he's like, oh, well, fuck. And, like, and then I explain to him what reality is. Like, I just, those two, like, I oscillate between loving Noel and loving Liam, like I can't ever be one or the other. But I know that there's elements of Noel that are just a mean big brother. And that if he was a little bit nicer to his little brother, we'd still have fucking Oasis. <laughs> and who knows what uh, what that, like, I don't know if you saw Supersonic. I, I do love band documentaries. Like I absolutely love, one of the reasons I became a comic, I can remember thinking this, was I hated being in the audience. I always wanted to be backstage. I'm obsessed with what's happening side of stage, what kind of a writer they have. I love backstage so much. So I'm obsessed with band documentaries or behind the music. And, uh, you know, anyone who's watched Supersonic knows that there's essentially clips of Spinal Tap in in the in those documentaries they they're they're modeling this on actual stories that have taken place to actual bands so it isn't just a concoction it's it's art imitating life noel has a real alan partridge thing about him when he's telling slug everything has to be needless to say i had the last laugh <laughs> yeah my favorite alan partridge needless to say <laughs> is in that uh, book that he wrote just a uh, couple of years ago uh, where he talks about a and b that he went to where he wasn't happy with the service <laughs> and at the end of the end of the chapter is needless to say i told him a new asshole on trip advisor that evening <laughs> So petty. <laughs> I'm not a huge fan of audiobooks. It depends who you get, but he does a version of that in character. Oh. And a friend of mine was actually cycling to work and laughed so hard he buckled the wheel of his bike and went on to the curb. <laughs> so he has a, a permanent scar on the side of his face now from laughing at Alan Partridge. You should send that to Steve Coogan. Steve Coogan's someone I've wanted to have on the show for ages, and we've come so close to getting him. But definitely, he would love to hear that. That would make his day. <laughs> Just to finish up there, you're saying about making lists. I know uh, an Irishman abroad uh, absolutely loved the show. If you were to have three guests, say, from the movie world who you would love to have on, who would they be? Daniel Day-Lewis, number one, right? I think that's a that's an absolute must. The Daniel Day-Lewis interview is one that I've wanted f since day one. And most of my day one aspirational guests we've gotten. I mean, I remember Colin Meaney being on day one, finding Colin Meaney's manager and going, can he do the show? Now he chased him for six years and got him a month ago. Uh, but Daniel is a hard man to get. And uh, maybe someday we'll get him. But can you imagine if you got him rolling, what that would be like? Number two, Ruth Nega. Uh, again, unbelievable talent, unbelievable story and, you know, so much to talk about. Um, and number three is 
uh, Colin Farrell. And I'm only saying these three people as well because you know, we haven't had them. I've been really, really blessed to have so many great people from Irish cinema and directors and actors and people in the industry uh, that like I I really am lucky that I'm now down to these three that I'm desperate to get. And we're close. Like we'll get them. I always take the attitude of uh, I w- we will get them eventually, but it just takes time. As you know, it just takes time and a bit of perseverance. But I can't wait to the day that we get them. I got to interview Colin Farrell when he was over for Dumbo and he is just he was probably my favorite interview I've ever done. Just an really? absolute gentleman. There's no because a lot of what we do, we do with uh, the junkets, you get like five to eight minutes and it's all very controlled. He just has no filter. So if you ask him a question, he'll give you an answer. Really? Yeah, I interviewed him for the premiere of Lobster and Yorgos Lanthimos and him in the in the lighthouse and sitting on stage with them getting getting the truth that's right that's what you get is the truth and i thought that it was a, it was an open goal once we'd done that but i've still been chasing him ever since unbelievable amount of uh hoops of fire to jump yeah. through to get to these people if you're not doing it by the junket method well, promise me one thing if you ever speak to daniel day lewis ask him what he thinks of the rock being highest paid actor of all time <laughs> does he wish he had taken it as seriously if he knew that was going to happen <laughs> i i don't know about you but there there are certain actors like killian murphy who i really get the impression that if hollywood turned around tomorrow and said there's no more money for actors <laughs> they'd be like grant no worries. <laughs> I would have done this anyway. You're the agents that were giving us money to start with. Uh, I think I, I, I'd imagine that money is the last thing that Daniel thinks about, particularly at this point in his career. But that is bananas, isn't it? Even though, are you not a rock fan? I liked him initially, but I just, what annoys me is that I, I'm, this is going to sound so kind of pretentious. I love films and cinema and he doesn't seem to like the thing that wound me up though he gave an interview before where he said he gets offered these you know great independent scripts with great stories that are much better than what he's being offered but the most amount of people won't get to see them so i don't do them and i think you're doing a disservice to the industry if you have the potential to make you know these kind of mid-budget good films and instead you're making you know jumanji 2 which looks the same as you know the, the ship one he's doing and they keep there's that i posted a, one on my page where there's six different pictures of him from six different films and he's wearing the same costume well i i would say to, to that i would say <laughs> first of all a lot of people listening to this are going to be like oh fuck you andy <laughs> yeah <laughs> again I, i'm used to that <laughs> yeah but the other thing is that that is an attitude that many actors have taken over the years who have subsequently turned on their heel and, you know, gone that route, one for you, one for me uh, attitude. I I do think that there's political aspirations with The Rock. I do think that he's kind of encouraged this idea that maybe he'll run for president someday. And I wonder if uh, 10 years down the road, if uh, we'll come back and have another chat and be like, oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> President Johnson was the best thing that ever happened. <laughs> <laughs> President Johnson. I mean, it has a ring to it. Um, it's been done before. <laughs> 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 
So we'll leave it there. Jarrett Reed, I had just a ton of fun speaking to you. Thank you so much for doing that. Spinal yeah. Tap, Shawshank Redemption, White Men Can't Jump. If you haven't seen them, see them now. Or if you have, definitely worth a rewatch. Thanks so much for joining me today, Jarrett. Cheers, Andy. Talk to you soon.